All right, open your Bible, navigate on your device to uh, Revelation chapter 16, if you would. That way you can follow along, and as you read, the Holy Spirit will minister to your heart the living word. Revelation chapter 16, verses 1 through 21 is our text. The topic, despite God's severe measures to bring them to repentance, those who inhabit earth blaspheme him. The title of our message, blah, blah, blasphemer, have you any shame? Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this unique gathering of uh, believers in Jesus Christ. Last few weeks, Lord, as we've been getting together, I've just been uh, reminded, Lord, of how we are called living or lively stones fit together by you. And there's a sense, Lord, that there's never been and never will be another gathering like this on earth. We are a unique temple this morning to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, Lord, you have uh, wonderful things to share with us from your word and in our fellowship. And so I pray that we would have a sense of heightened expectation, Lord, knowing that you're in our midst. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. The world population is closing in on 7.9 billion. Despite that hefty number, when trying to emphasize a point, we often claim there are only two kinds of people in the world. A Portuguese artist created the blog, Two Kinds of People. It's a series of paired illustrations that identify two approaches to certain behaviors. Think of two Hershey's plain candy bars, unwrapped, lying side by side. One of them has a bite mark in the upper right corner. The other is broken evenly along the indented lines in the upper right corner. Thus, there are only two kinds of people, those who bite the bar and those who do the right thing and break the bar. Another paired illustration shows two iPhone screens. One has multiple apps with notifications, you know, that red number there, while the other is free from any pending notifications. Thus, there are only two kinds of people, those with notifications cluttering their screen and those with an uncluttered screen. Indulge me one more. Do you add milk to your cereal or do you add cereal to your milk? It says a lot about you. Now, there are only two kinds of people in chapter 16 of the Revelation, those whom God has blessed and those who blaspheme God. In verse 15, the Lord speaks saying, blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. In verses 9, 11, and 21, we are told men blaspheme the name of God. God has blessed those of you who are in Christ with the gift of salvation received by faith. Those of you unsaved are blaspheming God. We're going to discuss what that means. One more thing, Jesus interjects in verse 15 saying, behold, I am coming as a thief. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, since you are blessed by God, Jesus doesn't, uh, Jesus doesn't come upon you as a thief. But number two, if you are a blasphemer, Jesus Christ does come upon you as a thief. And so let's talk about being blessed by God. During their military operations in Lebanon in 1982 and then again in 1996, warnings were given by Israel to the civilian population of southern Lebanon before attacks through the distribution of leaflets and via radio and loudspeakers, even by telephone calls. The measures taken by Israel to warn the civilian population during the operation have been described by some as 
probably the most extensive and most specific warnings of offensive operations over such a short period of time in the history of warfare. Jesus gives an advance warning to those who dwell on earth, saying in verse 15, I am coming as a thief. And so uh, we'll talk about it when we get there, but this, this, uh, everybody knows he's coming as a thief. It isn't the fact that they don't know he's coming, it's that they believe something else about it. And so this is like a, uh, in, I think it was the Iraqi war where they had shock and awe and they said, hey, we're coming. And this is not an unusual thing. Uh, many times in combat, uh, there will be some warning, get your civilian population out of there. Anybody who doesn't wanna die needs to leave right now. And so Jesus has given advance warning. Verse one, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. You know by now that Jesus took from his father a scroll having seven seals. Beginning in chapter six, the Lord opened the seals in succession. When Jesus opened the seventh seal, seven angels were given seven trumpets to blow in succession. And when the seventh trumpet was blown, seven angels were given seven bowls to pour out upon earth in succession. We've come to the bowls and it's late in the seven year great tribulation on the verge of Jesus' second coming. The wrath of God is his divine response in perfect holiness to mankind's disobedience and sin. You could say that from cover to cover, the Bible is a display of the wrath of God from compassion to condemnation. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. But his wrath has been poured out in the past and it will be poured out in the future. The plagues in the following verses are awful. I need not describe them in any great detail. They'll speak for themselves. What I will say is that they are literal. I've mentioned before in our studies that it has become popular among Christians to reject a futurist interpretation of the book. Futurists, and that's us, believe the revelation is primarily about future events that have not yet occurred, but will occur. The non-futurists claim that the revelation was mostly fulfilled in the first century, especially with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans. And so much of it they believe is hyperbole or allegory. Uh, and so the things you know we read about, they say are not literal, they are allegorical for the edification of the church. The plagues in this chapter you're gonna see are reminiscent of the plagues that were meted out upon Egypt before Israel's exodus. And so here's the question, were the 10 plagues against Egypt literal plagues or were they allegorical? They were literal. And so will be the plagues we read about today. Nothing like them in their scope and severity has happened any time in human history. Uh, and so they're not exaggerations, they're not hyperbole, they're not allegories. We'll see a great earthquake towards the end and it's not about the shaking of politics or you know, the shaking of, of men's souls. It's, a, it's about a great earthquake that's never happened before. And so uh, the futurist position, that's the one we take. Verse two, so the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. Now the beast we saw is the world leader we call the Antichrist. He has a considerable number of names in the Bible, more than 30 for sure. Chapter 13 described his image in a way that reminds us of artificial intelligence 
It's some kind of an image or uh, I don't want to call it a statue because that gives you the idea that it's, it's solid, but it's, it's some sort of sentient, uh, non-sentient life that is able to uh, order people killed uh, who do not take the mark of the beast. Uh, and then his mark is something in or on your hand or forehead by which you are to participate in contactless, cashless transactions. At the very middle of the Great Tribulation, the beast enters the re-erected Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and he desecrates it by demanding to be worshipped. Angels warn those who inhabit earth to refuse to worship him, or they will be lost for eternity. It's a, it's a decision they cannot repent of. Now, there's some times in the Bible where uh, it says that you cannot repent, uh, and that's because the, those decisions have consequences. It doesn't mean that if you wanted to come to the Lord, you couldn't. It means that you can't repent and you won't repent. For example, there's a, I shouldn't go off on this tangent, but I'm going to, there's that difficult passage in Hebrews where it says that the children of Israel sought repentance, but they, could, they wouldn't be granted repentance. And you think, wow. Well, they, God told them to go into the promised land. And they said, no, we're not going in. There's giants there. And God said, that's a once in a lifetime decision. You can't recover from that decision. And so they ended up wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. Doesn't mean they lost their salvation or that they couldn't still be saved. It meant that they made a decision that had a consequence. And in the tribulation, angels are gonna say, hey, those of you who worship the beast, you're gonna, that, that's your decision and your heart is gonna be hardened just like Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And, and there won't be any recovery from this. It's, and so think hard about what you're doing. The majority of mankind ignores God's compassion and worships the beast. And so verse three, then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became blood as of a dead man and every living creature in the sea died. This is global in its scope. All bodies of water that are seas are affected. And a lot of times uh, sincere Christian commentators, they, they go off on tangents on how this might happen. What are the physics of it or, or how, you know, this could, and I think what we, what they miss is that these are supernatural judgments. We don't need to know how it might happen. It isn't red tide, I guess is what I'm saying. God supernaturally turns the waters into blood and, and there's no physics to it except the omnipotence of God. The blood of a dead man pools, then separates. It leaves a dark red gunk at the lowest point and a light-colored fluid above that. Add to that the putrefaction of the death of every living creature in the sea. And so you get a picture of the scope of what's gonna be going on. Verse four, then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. I feel for you folks in Lemoore struggling in the aftermath of the incident that has affected your water supply. It's really a bummer not to have water, and, and uh, I don't think, well, I do think we take it for granted. In the final months of the Great Tribulation, there will be no source of potable water anywhere on the planet. No water to be trucked in. Um, you talk about a water shortage. I mean, this is it. Verse five, and I heard the angel of the water saying, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Angels are a straightforward eye-for-an-eye group. 
Uh, I mean, they look at this and they think, hey, that's wonderful. They shed the blood of your prophets. Now they're made to drink blood. All right, God, you go. We're not to think eye for an eye in the dispensation of the church age. The first Christian martyr was Stephen. We read in the book of Acts, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which is the Bible's way of talking about death because the body is left behind and the spirit goes to be with the Lord. And so the angels look at the martyrs and they say, hey, you, you know, they martyred your saints and, and shed their blood. And so now it's right that they drink that blood. Stephen, who is a martyr, uh, it, it reminds me of, I don't know if you remember that time in one of the presidential debates where they were talking about whether waterboarding was torture or not. And John McCain finally said, well, as the only one here who's actually been waterboarded, maybe I should chime in or something like that. And so, you know, Stephen chimes in to our study at this point, and he says, why don't you ask the Lord to forgive them, not give them blood to drink? We are to expect mistreatment and respond to it with compassion for the spiritual blindness of those who are perishing. Martyrdom is a crowning event for a Christian, right? We, we don't seek martyrdom. We don't go out of our way to be killed for the Lord or anything silly like that. But it's not a defeat. It's a great victory. It's an amazing testimony. It's a full testimony. Because, you know, as a Christian, we say, hey, I've given my life to Jesus Christ. And to be able to say I've given my life to him and now for him, that's fantastic. And so when we're being persecuted on that level or certainly on a lower level, uh, we should have compassion on our persecutors or on those who are mistreating us if they're non-believers especially because they're being they're blinded by the devil and that's why paul says you don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against powers and darkness and principalities and so it's not that your boss or whoever is demon possessed but it's that they're in a realm of spiritual blindness and it's amazing that they don't persecute you more people come and tell me about the problems they're having i say well are there more no that's pretty much it i go oh, go out there and get some more problems <laughs> You know, don't ask for them, but, you know, it, 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 you know, Stephen, and take his attitude and just say, hey, forgive them, they're blind. Our Lord is, was, and is to be. It's a way of proclaiming God is eternal in words that we can sort of understand. Uh, it's remarkable how God condescends to us to reveal himself to us in so many ways when there's such a great distance between us and him in terms of his eternity. It speaks to us, too of all things working together for the good of the saints. From eternity past through eternity future, God is working on our behalf. He is righteous to judge. It is his right to judge, of course, but additionally, he judges in such a way that he can save sinners and remain righteous. Listen to this passage from the New Testament book of Romans. For all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. All of mankind from the womb is guilty. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. In other words, God can declare you righteous because of what Jesus did. Whom God set forth as a propitiation or a satisfaction by his blood 
to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So he's saying that the blood of Jesus Christ is the satisfaction for the penalty of sin. And he ends that section saying, he demonstrates at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that's a mouthful, uh, but simply put, we are all sinners. God can receive us just as if we'd never sinned because the death of Jesus Christ on the cross satisfied the penalty mankind deserves. And by that, God remains just, righteous, while also justifying believing sinners. And so God cannot sacrifice his holiness. He can't just look at me and say, uh, you're forgiven, Gene. Uh, you, there was sin in your account and you've committed individual acts of sin, but I'm gonna forgive you because I'm a big compassionate God. But he's also a holy God. And he, he said from the beginning, the wages of sin is death. You have to die for your sin. Sin brings death. But he devised a, an amazing plan by which he could take our sin upon himself. And when he does that, he's able to forgive us because the penalty has been paid. And so he justifies the believing sinner. He doesn't make you righteous the minute you believe. You're, you're still in a body of flesh, an unredeemed body. But he declares that you are righteous on the basis of what Jesus did and that exchange that takes place. It's the only possible way people can be saved. Before moving on, notice that there is an angel of the waters. Revelation 7 verse 1 has four angels in charge of the winds. In chapter 9 verse 11, there's an angel who has authority over the abyss. In chapter 14 verse 18, there's an angel with power over fire. If we wanted to develop a devotional thought, we could talk about how we too, as believers in Christ, have our specific assignments. And so certain angels have specific assignments. In fact, I would guess that all angels do. We only learn about a few, but so do we. Some of our assignments are general. We are saints, husband, wife, son, daughter, employer, employee, whatever relationship that you can think of in the world or, or in relation to other people, those are general that we all have. Some are more specific such as our gifting from God the Holy Spirit or our calling in serving the Lord or our place as living stones in his temple on earth as members of his body on the earth. You are blessed with glorious purpose as a child of God. And discovering that is the wonder of your life, is it not? You get saved and then it's up to us to, with the Holy Spirit's leading, discover good works that God has before ordained that we should walk in them. And even though they're his works and his empowering, he rewards us for it. And so that is an amazing thing. Verse seven, and I heard another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. We cannot emphasize enough that God is true and righteous in his judgments. There is in him no unrighteousness. He is perfect in all his ways. Trust these things when you cannot fathom the depths of what he is doing or allowing in your life or in the world. It's not a cop-out to say that we are finite dealing with the infinite. Uh, you know, every day I think of wrong decisions God has made, <laughs> things that don't make sense to me in my own life and in the lives of others, usually in the area of suffering and, and sorrow and those kinds of things. But um, God is righteous in his judgments. We live in a fallen world. 
he's made a way of salvation for all those, uh, you know, who trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And we, and it really, often to a non-believer, you know, you say, hey, what good does it do to accuse God of unrighteousness or saying there is no God? Then you're in a worse place than you were. Then you have no hope, right? I'm so, oh, I'm mad at God. Why did he allow this? Why is he doing this? I won't believe in him. Oh, okay, so what are you going to believe in? How are you going to be helped? At least we have an answer. We understand why they're suffering and how it fits in. Not the particular why in each situation, why you know some suffer more than others and all that's a mystery still, but uh, I think you understand what I'm saying. It doesn't do any good to eliminate God. It puts you uh, in, in a hopeless situation. God is Father. Earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their kids. How much more does your Heavenly Father work all things together for good? And now, many times in my life, I've gotten gifts that I wish I could return. <laughs> you know, not as easy as Amazon, some of the things God gives you. Amazon, you buy something, right? And then you just throw it at somebody in coals and say, hey, send this back, you know. It's crazy. But um, I, we have to trust that God is true and righteous in his judgments because he is, and he's proven that he is. Verse eight, then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Now, I read these verses as a unit because they introduced this idea of blasphemy. The word connotes cursing or foul language to us, but that's not its meaning here. A good definition is defiant irreverence. Blasphemy is a human being's defiant irreverence towards God. And we see here that blasphemy is expressed by refusing to repent of your deeds and by not repenting to give him glory. That's what is meant by blasphemy. So they may have been saying things or they may not be able to talk much because they gnawed their tongues off, but either way, they refuse to repent of their deeds and they refuse to give God glory. Whatever else they might say or do to express blasphemy, it is their unbelief that blasphemes God. There is one and only one unpardonable sin. It isn't murder or suicide. It isn't adultery. It isn't coveting. It is unbelief in Jesus. Die rejecting Jesus in defiant irreverence and you blaspheme committing the unpardonable sin. Verse 12, then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the ways of the kings from the east might be prepared. By an act of God, the Euphrates river is dried up, makes easy the travel of the massive army of the kings from the east to the land of Israel to participate in a conflict. Is this referring to China? It's interesting to note that soon India will be the world's most populous nation. Uh, it's, they're quietly becoming the most populous nation. I don't know about the size of their military or anything like that, uh, but kings of the east here, you'll notice, is plural. It's not just the king from the east, it's the kings. And so this is a last days coalition from what we would call the Orient that is coming to uh, the land of Israel, and they are able to get across the Euphrates River on dry ground. 
Verse 13, and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. The Apostle John told us a few chapters earlier that Satan is the dragon. The beast has an assistant whom we met previously, and here he's called the false prophet. Together we could call these three an unholy trinity. Those who inhabit earth won't see Satan or unclean spirits that resemble frogs. John is privileged to see into that realm. And it is by the agency of these supernatural creatures that the armies of the world gather to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And so it's a, there are sinister spiritual forces behind the machinations, you might say, of what happens here uh, to draw these nations together. And all they, uh, although they seem to come to oppose the beast, these armies forget their conflicts to oppose the coming of Jesus in power and glory from heaven. Verse 15, behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, but know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. The master of the house knew a thief was coming, just not what part of the night the thief was coming. Uh, you know, he didn't get caught totally unawares that there were thieves around, but he wasn't ready. Jesus forewarns everyone that he is coming as a thief. There, there's, no, uh, there's no hiding it in the book of the Revelation. Everyone knows that he's coming. The entire seven-year Great Tribulation is a warning that he's coming. He announces shock and awe in advance. The blessed believe him and they look forward to his return. Non-believers blaspheme him, believing the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet and the world's combined military might can repel the thief. And so they side with the beast and the armies and all of that power. They're deceived, of course, by these demons as well. And there's a lot going on. But uh, they know he's coming and they blaspheme. Garments represent your salvation in the Bible. In your natural state, God sees you dressed in what the Bible calls filthy rags. You're unfit for heaven. When you believe God and are saved, Jesus removes your filthy garments and you receive a garment of salvation illustrated by a pure white robe of righteousness. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said this. He said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You are blessed by God with a garment of salvation. You are clothed and ready for him to come. And he will not overtake you as a thief that you're not waiting for. They gathered them together to the place in Hollywood called Armageddon. Or no, excuse me, in Hebrew. This battle will take place in the Valley of Megiddo in Hebrew, Armageddon. One commentator said, this is the day of the Lord's coming to do battle with the beast, the climax of human history when God assumes his great power and begins to reign. This is the great and terrible day of the Lord spoken of by the prophet Joel. The Lord isn't saying it is up to you to remain saved. 
He is describing two kinds of people here. And so the question is, are you blessed and robed or are you a naked blasphemer? There's only two choices. If you are a blasphemer, Jesus will come upon you as a thief. Emergency information networks send out texts or voice messages to warn a population to evacuate in the face of imminent disasters like fires or floods. Some people like to roll the dice, staying put to guard their property. It is materialism at the worst. Can you imagine that? Here comes the fire. Get out of its way. I'm going to stay back and fight it with a garden hose because I don't want to lose my house and my possessions. It's insane. Despite centuries of advance warning and seven years of concentrated judgment and invitation, blasphemers hold their ground against God in the great tribulation. Verse 17, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. To state the obvious, air is what we breathe. Not being told precisely how this plague affects the air we breathe, I think makes it more terrifying. You know, sometimes I think you can over-explain something and then it makes you feel like you've got a handle on it. Any good horror movie scares you, right? They don't want to show you. Remember Jaws? Who remembers Jaws? Now, they, they had to rewrite it and do a bunch of stuff because it wasn't working out. But you don't see the shark for a while. And you know what? It's terrifying. It's scary. Oh, that poor girl at the beginning screaming. and ugh, That's no boating incident. You know what I mean? And so, you know, a lot of times we want to go into all this description of the suffering of Jesus or of this or that. And I think it takes away from the, the power of it to really affect us. Ginomai, that's the one world translated by three English words in verse 17. It is done. It isn't the last word of the book or even in this chapter. It is, however, a fitting last word for the pouring out of the seventh final bull. A critical movement in God's plan, the great tribulation, the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls, is done. Verse 18, there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. The deadliest, most destructive earthquake ever recorded hasn't happened yet. The worst localized earthquake mankind has experienced will be insignificant compared to this global catastrophe. Footnote, it seems to be accompanied by earthquake weather. Noises and thunderings and lightnings. Do you ever, are you familiar with that expression? Seems like earthquake weather. It's that kind of weird gloominess that, and you, you know, uh, you think something's going to happen. But it does in the Revelation. In verse 19, it says, Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. The great city is Jerusalem. It'll be split into thirds. The cities of the Gentile nations all around the world will fall to rubble. Babylon will be the subject of a retrospective in the following two chapters, chapter 17 and 18. It is Babylon. It's not New York City or Rome or Washington, D.C. or any other world city. We'll see that it is the literal Babylon, and we'll talk about that, Lord willing, next time. Verse 20, then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. These words describe incredible topographical changes. It'll be a sort of different version of what people call the flat earth. 
You know, people are talking about the earth isn't round, it's flat and um, crazy stuff. But here it appears, since we take this literally, that the earth is going to return to a flattened state. It says there won't be islands or mountains. They won't be found anymore. And then, of course, the Lord is going to, uh, you know, have the millennium to restore the earth. And then there's the creation of a new earth and new heavens in, uh, later in the book. Verse 21, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone having the weight of a talent. Men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the record for the largest hailstone in the United States belongs to an eight-inch wonder that fell near Vivian, South Dakota in 2010. It was the size of a volleyball and weighed almost two pounds. Can you imagine that thing? The tribulation hailstones will average 29 inches and weigh 130 pounds. That's the weight of a talent, somewhere between 110 and 130 pounds. I'm taking the high end. You're not going to be on your cell phone saying, hey, honey, do you see this hailstorm? Isn't it cool? It's, it's, it's terrible. These are awful judgments. A.W. Tozer said, when God is finally ready to refine and restore the earth, everyone in heaven and on earth and in hell will know that no human laboratory could compound the fire that will be poured out on the earth. God has promised that he will not hide his wrath forever. He is prepared to speak in supernatural manifestations in that coming day of the Lord. Blessed or blasphemer, believer or non-believer, sheep or goat, wheat or tare, robed in white or naked, heaven or hell. Unlike a Hershey bar, your iPhone or cereal, what kind of person you are matters. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a blasphemer. doesn't matter how respectful you are. We're not talking about language. We're talking about non-belief, unbelief. And um, we're not in the great tribulation. We don't know when it's going to start. It'll start at some point after the rapture of the church. Uh, this isn't to scare people. This is what the Bible says. You're already condemned if you're not a believer. You're born condemned, but God in his compassion delays his wrath against you, giving you opportunity to trust Christ and be saved. He is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. And he needs to be your savior in particular. And so if you're here this morning and don't know the Lord, uh, while we're singing, come forward. We'd like to pray with you. If you're here and you do know the Lord, you just want prayer, come forward and we'll pray with you as well. If not, stay in your seat. Uh, this is a time for you to spend in personal retrospection and reflection. Sing with us, pray. Uh, let the Lord move on your heart uh, in a personal way as we close the service. Before we go back out into the big bad world and be distracted by the many things that we brought in, uh, it, it gives us a chance to not only cast our burdens on the Lord, but make sure that they're there and that they stay there. Amen.